Good morning, everyone. Welcome to today's webinar. My name is Sophia. I organize Spectrum webinars for you and bringing the community together through learning at Spectrum. So for those of you who are new to Spectrum, aside from organizing online events like this uh, and also in-person events, we offer curated workspaces for community experience and the connections to expand your business. So today's breakfast session webinar, we're privileged to have Lim Huitier, the founder of Vision Tech. He is the recipient of National Youth Entrepreneur Award 2020 by Action Community for Entrepreneurship, ACE. So, um, so Huitier is a serial entrepreneur. As CEO, he has, listed, uh, he has listed his company at over $230 million before age of 30 years old. And at only 26, he became one of the youngest executive directors of a London-listed company. So today, he sat on the board of three listed companies. Um, so let me introduce a little bit about Vision Tech. It's a visionary organization that helps government and enterprises adopt technologies such as AI, blockchain, and cybersecurity. So it's apt to share with you on today's webinar on technology for the betterment of humanity. So for those of you participants who have any questions, do post them on the platform here. And uh, be, without further ado, Huijie, please. All right, thank you very much and a very good morning to everyone. So I guess today I'm gonna to share a little bit about vision and what we see very much in the future. And before I start on that, share a little bit about what I'm really passionate about. And I've been in business for about 15 years as well, of which technology uh, over the last 12 years. And one of the key things that I'm really passionate about is how do we actually solve real world problems? I foresee that technology is gonna be a key thing that really drives companies and future-proof and drives impact for humanity in the years to come. So very much as, the, as what you hear our company is called Vision, our goal is really about how do we turn vision to reality. And that really sums up the things that I'm passionate about, which is really how to use technology for betterment of human race and how do we drive forth right, that innovation in the world itself. So let me share a little bit on vision as well as some of the thoughts that I have. I have a presentation which I'll share shortly. All right, so sometimes to look very much into the future, we need to look a little bit at past history and history can really tell us a lot about the trends as well as what might actually possibly come in the future. So if we look over the last 200 years or so, we see major technology disruptions and innovations that has impacted the world. One of the key things that we realize in this number of years is that the technology innovations are becoming faster and faster and impact it's very much touching people's life in a very much larger form but rather than just the frequency of technology innovations coming up even faster importantly it's very much about the adoption of technology itself so taking a study of the number of years it took for estimated 25% of the US population to adopt technology. There's a study over the last number of years 
for major technologies that has impacted us. So if we look at electricity, it took about 46 years for technology to be adopted by 25% of the US population, followed by 35 years of the telephone and 26 years of the television. Then came in the personal computer, which took about 16 years, the cell phone 13 years, and the World Wide Web, which was about seven years. And coming a bit closer to where we are today, it took Pokemon Go just 19 days to be adopted. So this is a really interesting graph because it shows us not only about major technologies that has been impacting us over the last number of years, but more so in entirety, the population or the people that adopting technology is becoming very much faster and shockingly faster from 46 years to just 19 days. Today, if we have a good solution that we put out into the world, we are today able to impact many people and many lives in a very short period of time. So the next study that we looked into was very much over the last 20 years, the number of internet giants that has been around. And it's interesting to look at the last 20 years. And in taking this, we're able to see, oh, give me a sec. And over the last 20 years, we're able to see not only about the trends that's occurred over the last 20 years, but we also took a slice shot of every five years to see what was the difference over the course of the last 20 years. So in 1998, we were able to see the top 20 internet giants. And those that are in white are those that are still around in the top 20 list over the course of the next five years. And those that are being grayed out are the ones that has dropped off from the top 20 list. So if we were to bring this forth over 20 years from 1998 all the way to 2018, there are three key things that is of interest. The first thing is that on every five-year basis, there's more than 30% of the companies that has dropped out from the top 20 lease each five years. The second point that we are able to take up from this is that less than 30% of the companies 20 years ago are still around. And just two of the companies over the last 20 years are still in the top 20 list in 2018. So some interesting facts, what does this tell us? We are also able to see that the trend of the companies over the last five years, the last 20 years has very much been impacted. And the trend of how technology has been impacting these 20 companies. So the next question to really ask is this, we look back over the last 200 years, we look back over how technology adoption is really increasing. And we look back into the top 20 internet giants over the last 20 years. The next question to really ask is this, what is going to come in the next 10 years, in the next 20 years? Because that's what's going to impact us. And that's where the opportunity lies, if we catch the trend correctly. And if we're in startup, or if we're investor, invest into a company that's focused on that, there's a good chance that we might make a lot of 
money and potentially run a business that can really impact the world. So data, we are in an era of data explosion. 90% of the world's data was just created in the last three years. Can you imagine in the next five years, in the next 10 years, or even the next 20 years, how much data would actually be created? And the question asked really is this, with so much data being created, are companies really well equipped to be able to handle this much of data and to effectively be able to utilize this data, whether is it to future-proof themselves or to utilize this data really to maximize and optimize it for your company itself. So with that much data, there are companies that are ill-equipped to handle this amount of data. And there are three key things that we see that companies might be ill-equipped for. The first one, right, as an interesting fact, there's more than $600 billion worth of loss due to online frauds and scams in the year 2017, leading us to an increasingly less trustful world. Today, 1.7 megabytes of data is produced every single second by each person. It's becoming a much noisier world today. And 600% increase in cyber attacks with an estimated $6 trillion loss in year 2021. Imagine if this $6 trillion could have been diverted toward causes for good instead. It is a real world problem. We are living an increasingly insecure world. So if we are not well equipped or ready to take on the data world that's coming in the next three, five, 10 years, these are issues that we really have to deal with. So the question asked really is this, what are things that we can do to better prepare for this data world? So at Vision, we looked at three core technologies that we believe strongly that will impact companies over the course of the next three, five or 10 years. And blockchain, AI, and cybersecurity are technologies that we believe strongly will create huge amounts of impact. And if used and utilized well, we'll be able to future-proof companies in the years to come. We look at technologies that typically will mature in the next three years, because if it was too close, we would not have enough time to really build a good solution around that. And if it was too far, it would not really create that impact towards companies that we would really like to help. So blockchain, and if you simplify, simplify all these key technologies into its simplest form, blockchain really brings forth trust. AI brings forth clarity and cybersecurity brings forth peace of mind. And we look at these three core technologies very much an integral part towards future-proving companies moving forward, very much like a tripod. If you do not have three legs and you only sit on two or even one, you need to balance on each of them. What if today you have huge amounts of data trust and maybe even AI to look at data clarity? However, your data might not be fully safe and you do not have peace of mind. Likewise, you might have huge amounts of data security or blockchain for data trust, but with that too much amount of information or data, 
You do not have AI engine to bring forth better clarity, leading you not being able to fully utilize actionable insights from your data itself. So for companies to really future-proof, we believe strongly that implementing blockchain, AI, as well as cybersecurity will be integral towards being able to future-proof the companies, all in integrated form. So some key statistics. What if companies have a failure to protect their data or failure to utilize their data from an impact to business perspective? So if you look at loss in business, on average, with a million records for data breach, it's about $40 million. And a really key interesting fact is that on average, companies need about 200 days to identify that they have a data breach in their organization and an additional 165 days to rectify that. Can you imagine 365 days when you actually have all your data constantly being leaked or having a data breach towards a third party that has malicious intent on your organization. These are real world statistics, 365 days to be able to rectify that. That's shocking. And loss in value for, on average for companies that are listed, they have an average of 7.27% drop in their share price upon reveal of a data breach. And our failure to utilize of data, loss in business on average counts for 15 to 25%, loss in productivity of 85%, and loss in value of 25% less revenue and 10% more cost. So from a product perspective, Vision focuses very much as a data-first technology group that looks into data productivity, primarily through data decisioning, automation, as well as trust, powered by AI, blockchain, and cybersecurity. And if we take what we term as a data journey or typical data journey across an organization, we go across a few key different steps. Starting first with data discovery, followed by data management and data optimization, data opt automation, protection, and then integrity, followed by monetization, privacy, and recovery. And we look at the first two different phases, the ones in green very much looked into data decisioning. And the ones in blue looks very much at optimization as well as data trust. And the question really here is this, if today we do not even know where we are in terms of our data landscape, and we say we would like to plan a digital transformation goal over the course of the next five years, how are we effectively able to plan our digital transformation journey if we do not even know where we are? Or if we do not even have a map to say what the entire landscape is like? So from a data perspective, it is important and critical that we have our hands on that and that we know clearly so that we're able to effectively plan on that. So blockchain, AI, and cybersecurity, three very, very large technology topics. Let me deep dive into one key area, which is blockchain, because each three key topics we are able to talk for weeks and weeks on end. But I would like to cover a little bit and deep dive a little bit on blockchain itself. Uh, this was a TED talk I did just a couple of months back. I'm using this presentation, but I believe it really drives the point on one key aspect of real blockchain change the world. So 
let's deep dive into this. So I'll be talking about three core topics on blockchain. And the revolving topics really revolves around three key things of trust, security, as well as control. So let me touch on the first topic of trust. Trust. No one trusts anyone anymore. An interesting study was really did, was, was done. And before I go into that study, there's one question that I like to pose to everyone. Would you trust a human more or would you trust a robot more? And this is a real world question. Reason being because in the next five years or 10 years, the amount of interaction we're going to have with robots, machines, and chatbots is inevitable. In fact, today, you might be talking to a chatbot or you might be talking to a messaging bot or a messaging a, a chat, which you think might be a human behind it, which actually is a chatbot. If today you call a number of the different airlines, it is actually an AI engine that's actually talking to you before they route it off towards the real world, to, towards a real human. So the question asked really is this, would you trust a robot more or human more in the years to come? And of course, we have many varying degrees when we talk about trust in different scenarios. Whether we trust a chatbot to give you accurate directions from point A to point B, or a driverless car where you set in the directions of where you want to go to bring you from where you are to, to where you want to go, or a machine to perform a surgery on your body, or a robot to take care of your newborn child. Multiple varying degrees of trust in multiple different scenarios. I'll put some talk to that. So a study that was done was pretty interesting that 64% of people, and this was done mainly in the US, trust a robot more than their managers. Interesting facts. People trust machines more than humans for privacy and financial information. So this was study that was being done. The question you really ask is moving forward. We will be interacting with robots and machines more. What's going to happen? And trust, of course, leads on to our next topic of agreements. So agreements are critical because that's agreement that we have between one person with another or group of people. And if we really look at agreements years and many, many years ago, times in antiquity, we have agreements through a gentleman's handshake or verbal agreement or nod of a head. And then we became more educated and we have written legal contracts. What will the future of agreements bring us to? Of course, if legal contracts were to work that well, then we wouldn't have so many legal cases where we always go to a court of law. Yes, we might write a specific contract and list down all different terms on the legal contract but because of ambiguity or the end outcome might be something that's not expected, we still go to a court of law and depend upon the judge or jury to make a decision of the eventual end outcome, which might take time to eventually resolve. So the future of agreements, at least that we see, is what we term as programmable contracts or smart contracts, where we literally program the parameters or the end outcome into the agreement itself. When something happens, what will happen and when will it happen? If someone were to do this, what will eventually 
happen as trigger event, a clear trigger event with a clear trigger outcome. By programming the literal parameters into the contract, as a computer, you only know it's either yes or it's a no. And that becomes very clear. Of course, it's important to program the right parameters, otherwise the end outcome will be something that's not expected. So let's bring this topic towards something a bit closer to us. Let's talk about food, something that we like, or something that we do every single day, sometimes three times, sometimes more times in a single day itself. And food is a huge aspect because food is what we put into our body. Food is what we feed our children with that might have allergies and likes or might just have food which is unsafe to us or to our family or to our loved ones. The question we really ask is this, when you're drinking that nice bottle of wine or that whiskey or, or eating the organic food that states that it comes from a specific region, how do you really know that that bottle of wine comes really from the source of where it claims to be? Or the organic food, it's really organic. Or that source of where it states it comes from really is where it's from and that food is safe to eat. I think this is an increasingly real world problem that we're facing every single day, which we are kept unknown of because there are real, there, there's really people in the world that is leveraging upon this and delivering food that is non-regulated, non-licensed, or even not from where it claims to be. So blockchain brings forth this key benefit of being able to have what we term as traceability and provenance of tracking to identify where the source of food really comes from. And with this, we are better able to identify and have that trust whether that food source is really safe, it's really licensed, or it's really regulated. With blockchain, we are able to create trust in an increasingly trustless world. We have agreements on smart contracts that are programmable so that we are able to input in our expected end outcome with the necessary parameters. And importantly, we're able to have things that we can better trust, such as food, to really know where it came from and to have that safety of, and comfort of identifying that it's really safe to eat. So let me jump to my next topic, which is really about data and about security. So I've covered this, 90% of the world's data was created in the last three years. But to give an idea how big this really is, 2.5 quintillion bytes of data is created every single day. What do we mean by quintillion? Quintillion is like 18 zeros, one eight. That's a huge number and it's only going to increase. So it's really jungle data world out there. Every single turn, every single step you make, there might be a huge trap or you might be going into the unknown. You might be leaking the data, you might be sharing your personal information that you might not want to share. It is really a huge jungle in the data world there. Some interesting figures and facts, um, as some people might know, Facebook was, there was a breach for Facebook where more than $5 billion was actually fined to them. And if you bring that down to per user, 
on average, it's about $1.85 per user for data breach. And not too long ago, there was British Airways that was fined $229 million for a breach of 500,000 people. And to put that in perspective, it's $458 per user versus Facebook's 185. The question asked is this, is the data of British Airways at $458 versus Facebook, $1.85 per user, really close to more than 100 times or 200 times more? How do we determine the cost and the value of privacy and our data? Governments around the world have been looking very much more into the area of data leaks, data privacy, as well as the security of data. Just about last year, the Singapore government has created a government data office, GDO, where they see that increasingly data is more and more critical and there are external sources that might even share with the government itself this potential data breach. So GDO's objective is really to be able to escalate, to have a single point of contact where if there was any potential data breach, they're able to look into it really quickly. And if anyone were to raise out that there was a potential data breach, they're able to across all government agencies drive the data privacy security aspects of data. A study was done by the GDO, and this is really quite shocking figures. In Singapore, there are about 90 public agencies of which there are about 2,800 systems across these 90 agencies. They did a study across 300 over systems and it came out with a few key studies. Number one, out of every four systems, three systems has a vulnerability. Of these vulnerabilities, and we split it up, approximately 60% is low risk, 30% is mid risk, and 10% is high risk. Can you imagine even from a government perspective, three out of four has a vulnerability with those key statistics. So it's great because Singapore government has taken a step towards that, not only to study that, to publish that, but to take active actions towards being able to rectify that. And there are five key measures that came out on being able to reduce these vulnerabilities over the course of the next five years and of which the first five includes, the first one being to make data unusable when it is extracted. So even if hackers were able to reach the data in the servers and to extract the data, they will not be able to utilize that data. And the second one is for better provenance, for better tracking, for better detection of potential data leaks and rectification of that problem. So one of the key areas that blockchain can really bring forth is this additional security and tracking of data itself. So in traditional cybersecurity, what people tend to do is that they build very, as an analogy, as a city, they build very tall walls, they build very wide walls to prevent thieves from climbing the walls to come in or trying to penetrate these very thick walls to go to the city. However, 
an evolution of security might be today if you have a treasure map. The way it's being done is you do not even need to have these tall walls or this white wall. As an evolution, you can have a treasure map. And with this treasure map, you can duplicate it a few times, make it become like a jigsaw puzzle, tear it up, and split it and store it around the world or around the city. With each treasure chest containing a few parts of this treasure map. So if a thief would like to find your treasure, they first need to find a treasure map. They need to find that treasure chest of maybe that 20 treasure chests that's been distributed around the city. And after they find the treasure chest, they need to solve the puzzle, pick the lock to be able to open up the treasure chest. If they were to open up the treasure chest, they find one or two pieces of this treasure map, which might be the same piece of the treasure map or might be a duplicate piece. They then need to identify the 19 other treasure chests around the city, solve their parcel, open it up, find those treasure maps, piece it together, encrypt, which are encrypted, and eventually have that treasure map. So the approach towards cybersecurity moving forward is very different from today. Rather than having very tall walls or very wide walls to prevent people from coming in, even if the thieves were to be able to come in, they are unable to utilize that data to make it fully usable for their means or for what they want to do. And blockchain is a key technology that can bring forth this key benefit of revolutionizing how cybersecurity in the future would look like. And to my last topic on blockchain really is about control. The question asked is this, is my data really mine? And ask yourself this, every single day we have huge amounts of information that we put into our systems from a personal level to a corporate level. On a personal level, whether we have our Fitbit or smartwatches and we bring that out for a run or for a cycle or for a swim, it is your heart rate monitoring, it's your sleep patterns, it basically has how often you exercise, it has all the information about you. When you travel and get onto your car, you basically, or you, you, you get a grab, or you basically get a taxi, right? Google Maps might have your location of frequency of when you have left your house and when you might reach office. In fact, one period of time, automatically was prompting, even before I left my house, literally just before I left my house, oh, it's 20 minutes to your workplace. Take this particular route, which I believe they were testing something on beta mode. So the question you really ask is this, is your data really yours? Including that video you upload onto YouTube or that picture you took even of your kids and all the picture they place onto your Instagram. So in addition to asking the question of your data, it's really yours. The question is, does it matter? So a study was being done and it states that 90% of respondents of this study states that they were concerned if a company at which the data was being shared was sold to another party. So would you actually allow your data to be sold to a third party? Well, the question is, it's already actually being done, right? Whether is it from Facebook or YouTube or Google, technically all the advertisements or advertisement revenue they are doing, it's it, your, your data is really being sold. So whether you want to or you do not want to, at this point on time, it's already happening. But the next question then to ask, 
rather than just asking question of whether you sell your personal data, would you allow companies to sell your data at $50 per month or giving you $50 a month? If they give you $50 every single month, will you actually allow them to sell that data? What if it's a hundred? What if it's a thousand? What's the price that you would allow companies to sell your data for? What if that data is masked without your personal information, but with just the metadata of the information that's related to you? Is that something you'll do? So ask the question to yourself because that's a real world problem that's upcoming in the next number of years. And in fact, uh, the Singapore government, something that they're looking into in the areas of digital personas. And that's something we can talk a little bit more about. So 81% of Americans feel that they have little control over their data collected by companies. 79% are concerned about how their data is being used and 59% have little understanding about how their data is being used. The question today, it's not just a lack of security of your data, but a lack of control of your data. Even though your data is secure, it doesn't mean that you have that control over your data. And this today is becoming increasingly a real issue. So who should control our data? Where should they use our data? Why and when and how long? Think about these questions because these are something interesting that will really impact us for years to come. So with blockchain, we are better able to control our data. We are better able to have access rights and the rights of who to share this data too. And in fact, we are able to monetize it if we want to and importantly decide who are we able to share and if we do share, would you like to monetize it? Or if you want to share with them, how long? Or in what means we'd like to share our data with them? So concluding on this topic for blockchain, blockchain really brings forth trust today in the less trustless society, security in an increasingly unsecured world, and control in uncontrollable times. It is evident that technology is becoming more and more integral part of our lives today. And more importantly, we need to foresee what the future is incoming, both from a personal level or from a business angle. Because to future-proof ourselves, we need to make sure that firstly, we are aware. And the second thing is what actions are we actually going to take? Whether it's better to protect or whether it's better to be able to capitalize upon the opportunities that we have in the coming years. So will blockchain change the world? I guess that's a question that you can ask yourself. And I believe in the next three years or six years, this will become about a little bit on three specific use case studies so that um, it's something that we can really see that's happening in the real world. And these three case studies hopefully can give some food for thought as well. So the first one really is an area of data discovery and decisioning for the banking industry. So uh, recently at Vision, we uh, the top global bank in Singapore. 
And the challenge that banks really have is this. Banks have huge, huge systems. They have like two, 300 systems or maybe even more within the bank itself. And the challenge they really face is that maybe 50% of their systems might have been implemented 30 years ago. 50% might be implemented over the last, um, 30% of the 50 of those systems might be implemented over the last three years. And the in between 100 over systems might be implemented between the last three years to 30 years. So imagine if today you're the CTO or the chief digital officer of the bank and your systems that's 30 years ago, that's legacy, your systems that's three years ago and many systems in between. It's almost impossible to have a hundred percent graphs and whole of everything within the bank itself. And don't even talk about the systems and applications. Let's talk about the important thing, which is the data. Imagine the data being fragmented over technology stacks that has been many years ago, technology and systems and databases that has been implemented more recently. And typically how the systems talk to, to each other through connectors or through API. So if you were to go in and imagine yourself as a chief digital officer or data officer, you're going to see this entire mess of all the different data with hundreds of servers all around the world. So what was something that Vision did was we created a product called Data Sense that created, that allowed the bank to plug in all their different data sources and create a data map. And with this data map, they're able to visualize all the different systems within the bank itself, all the data that's flowing in and out of each system, as well at the same time, what's new data, what's obsolete data, and more importantly, what's abnormal data, creating a baseline of what the data activity is like within the bank. So imagine this, if today on a working day for a bank, say Monday to Friday, the amount of data exchange is like that. And typically on a non-working day, the amount of data exchange in the bank is like that. What if suddenly the data exchange on a non-working day would spike up 5% or even 10%? Rather than waiting 200 days to identify there might be a potential data breach or a data leak, with this baseline of data abnormality detection, we're better able to identify that there might be a potential malicious application or a data leak that's compromising the data within the organization. With this map, organizations with huge amounts of data sets, legacy systems and new systems are then able to plan out an effective strategy, not only about digital transformation of where they want to go, but to clearly understand where they are. And by understanding where they are, to very effectively have a matrix of improvement towards where they want to go. So for large organizations moving forward, it's important to have that data map and visualize all the applications, where the data is coming from, where it's going to, have research ability to be able to effective data decisioning because who owns insights of data
So Huijie, just to let you know, you're slightly frozen. Sorry. Um, do you mind sharing the last I, part uh, again? Yeah, I think I dropped out, but let me reshare my screen. Cool. And that's very much for large organizations with huge amounts of data set. So let's go to the second use case, which is pretty interesting for insurance industry. So one of the use cases that we've been exploring with uh, top global uh, reinsurer was this. The future of, re of, re of insurance is going to be very different. So there's this term called variable insurance. And what variable insurance is really interesting is about is very much this. Today, when we go to insurance, we buy an insurance plan with a fixed premium. We know very clearly every single year what premium we are paying for insurance plan. So the idea about variable insurance is very much this. The idea about variable insurance is that if today you are healthier, the insurance company will rebate you every single year but for being healthy. However, if today you are unhealthier, the insurance company will charge you a premium premium if you are unhealthy. So the question is, how does this insurance company identify if today you are healthier or you're unhealthier? And this boils down to a few key metrics, but some of the key metrics includes like biological age versus your physical age. So for example, if today you're 50 years old, but uh, you exercise a lot, you eat healthy, you have a fantastic diet. What essentially happens, oh, give me a sec. What essentially happens is that if your physical age is 50 and your biological age is 30, what essentially happens is that the insurance company will rebate you on the premium. Vice versa, if you're unhealthier, then your physical age and you smoke a lot, you drink a lot, and say your biological age is 60 versus your physical age of 50, you pay a premium premium. So in order to collect all this data, the information that you'll be able to that needs to be collected includes your physical activity, your lifestyle activity, and eventually even your genomics and your health records. So that comes, for example, by linking up your smartwatch, how often do you actually exercise? What's the frequency? What's the duration? in terms of lifestyle activity, what's your resting heart rate? What's your sleeping heart rate like, right? And how frequent do you sleep? How often do you sleep? Is that routine very stable or is that routine very disruptive? And by collecting all this information, you're able to come out with a specific matrix or a score that determines whether you're healthier or you're unhealthier compared to your physical age. The question then is, as an end user, you'll, be, you'll freak out if so-called a company has control or access to all your information or all your data. So utilizing blockchain technology, one of the things that we explore with them is to provide them with three key benefits to resolve this data privacy, data fear problem. So one of the things that we implement and three key things is this. The first one is very much to provide access rights or data rights back to the end user. By having the data fragmented and stored in multiple places, the end user is able to decide and determine who have access to what's their personal data, when and for how long. And if they weren't already in a contract with the insurance company, they can decide 
to cut off that specific access of personal data towards that specific third party. Secondly, they are able to mask privacy. So for example, a specific celebrity has a sensitive disease. In a traditional sense, if you were to go to his insurance agent and to list down, he has this sensitive disease, his specific agent will know it. The agent brings back and sends that PDF back to the back office. Five or six people processes that. Six or seven of them, any one of them leak that sensitive disease out to the media. And that celebrity will have been compromised of both his identity as well as the disease that he has. And that's highly detrimental, not only for celebrity, but for any other people within the space. So the technology that we've implemented is to be able to use blockchain to, to link the identity of the individual with his data sets, yet to be able to segregate the identity and share the actual data with insurance companies. When the insurance company were to analyze the data and bring forth back what might be the most possible premium, only at that point of time when they enter the contract, may that specific identity be revealed towards the system. With this, you are able to protect the privacy and data identity of the individual itself. Third use case is very much in the areas of what we term as data collaboration and mobility. One of the biggest problem we have today is this, and I'm sure everyone, especially in this COVID situation, is facing. I go to a shopping mall, I key in all my personal details, I go to office building previously, I key in all my personal details, I go up to the office next, I key in all my, or I go to the next gantry, I key in all my personal details again. I go up to the office, or I go up to the uh, so-called NTUC or to the shopping or, or to the supermarket, I key in all my details again. For me to get into so-called the building and for me to get to the eventual place or where I'll go, I might need to key in my information two times or three times or even more. Yet, it is the same information that I'm keying in all the time. That comes to the question of data collaboration and mobility. So what if I'm able to keep all my information once and every single place I go, I just need to scan a QR code or to scan a specific identifier and I'm able to enter the place. Imagine if you're to do this every single day, how many minutes are you able to save? And how much inconveniences are you able to save in your daily life? So in the maritime industry, there's one of the use cases we're exploring. Very much for seafarers or people who works on ships or oil rigs, every single time they go to sea or every single time they get a job, they will need to fill in all the information on their CV. And in addition to that, provide your sea log. Every time you go to sea, you will need to lock down your sea log. And in addition to that, on average, for a seafarer, they might have eight certificates up to even 20 certificates from fire safety to operating this machine to driving the ship or so on and so forth. So imagine every single time, which might be three months, six months or one year, every single time or even a couple of weeks, you need to fill this information up over and over and over again. The second part then is if today the oil rig or the oil ships gets into trouble and there's an accident, and if the insurance company were to find out that one of the seafarer might not have the necessary certificate or information or so-called has been mistakenly or fraudulently imputed, the amount of lost or claims that 
that specific accident has occurred, they might not be able to claim it from the insurance company. So the authenticity and accuracy and integrity of the data is highly important. So by implementing blockchain, we're able to identify the provenance of the certificates of the seafarers, input their information and create identity once, and allow the information to be accessed and shared through their own control, saving huge amounts of time, saving huge amounts of inconveniences, and to use AI to run through that specific engine. Bring this forth one level higher towards countries' collaboration, say, for example, Singapore, Indonesia, or Philippines port, where they have now their own blockchain network, and they can selectively share what information they would like to share across countries. Every single ship coming into port then no longer need to keep refilling up that information time and time again, which takes them hours at time. Ensuring also that the data is highly accurate. And if there were an issue, we're able to track the data back to source. So that's my three high level use case studies. I believe I have completed my sharing session and I'll pass it back to the organizers for Q&A. Thank you. Thanks, Huijie. Uh, so, um, interesting point you brought out there. Um, to trust a human more or a robot more? I still don't have an answer to that question. <laughs> so, um, what do you think um, in terms of why, why that question? So, so, so I'll, I'll break this up to three different parts. And firstly, before I even answer the question will be, do you think that we will actually have a choice moving forward to trust a robot more or to trust a human more because the question is that it might no longer be a choice moving forward in fact even in today's space what's happening is that if you do bookings online or even if you were to call a help desk or send in an email majority of the support services are now already being moved towards so-called a machine the question then is how disruptive or how interactive would this will be in our personal lives moving forward. But the fact of matter is this, would you be more comfortable sharing your personal income statement, your tax with a machine or with a person? And the fact of the matter is, and the study was shown, is that if I would like to actually share my personal income tax or even my taxation or my personal finances, it's a reality. People are more comfortable sharing that with a machine or key information in and telling, oh, I make X amount of dollars every single year. It's really contextual. Hmm. It's contextual towards number one. Sometimes we don't even have a choice. And it's contextual towards also at the same time, our own comfort level. And the third thing actually is would the robot be actually more effective in performing that service compared to a human being? And the fact of life is that, yes, there'll be things that robots will be able to do better. There'll be things that humans will always be able to do better. And hopefully it doesn't, that skill doesn't keep in the very near future that robots are able to do everything better than humans. You never know. In the next 1,000 years, maybe. In the next even 100 years, maybe. We have no idea. But that's a fact of matter that's really contextual. And that is really a real aspect of our everyday life because it's really happening. 
But I would say, um, you know, there are soft skills that human have, which robots are not able to, um, you know, execute or emote. Um, and at the same time, I know that um, there are fears of uh, robots taking over humans, which I think um, we need to coexist together in order for robots to help us with our work and at the same time for us to have these emotions or soft skills to carry out our tasks better. Yes, totally agree. It's like, I mean, there'll be certain hard skill sets that people look into, but that service element is always something that people look towards. Right. And I mean, exact use case and example will be this. Um, this company that totally revolutionized the fintech space by moving towards uh, online brokerage many, many years back, I believe it was 30 years back uh, in US, and everyone started utilizing that. But that company more recently has invested heavily into service brokers, so people service people, because they know eventually that number one, there's the ultra high net worth, and number two, there's also aging population that would rather be served within that particular aspect itself to be able to give a more informed decision, right? Sometimes robots aren't fully perfect as well. They might come out with a specific answer that was programmed, but that might not be in of best interest towards individual that's sitting across the screen. So yeah, totally agree with you. I mean, the idea is really to see what will be the things that are, are we able to then effectively hand over to a machine that's able to do the routine and necessary items and do things that's better than human beings. And of course, for that other aspect, the service aspect, very much towards having humans to be able to do that. Great. So we have a question from Mr. Chris McPherson. He mentioned that, uh, you mentioned that the value of an individual's data, do you really see that we will get to the point of a company willing to pay for personal data? Well, the fact is that companies are already paying for personal data. And the question is the reason why we have like PDPA or Personal Data Privacy Acts or GDPR in uh, Europe and the likes is because this is to protect individuals. And you know, from years and years ago, people are already selling databases of companies towards uh, uh, co-calling companies or even to email companies or marketing companies that basically are reaching out. That's why you get spam calls or spam SMSs or even spam emails because uh, these companies have already bought a database or captured your database. And in fact, credit card companies, health companies, drug companies, they are buying up all this data, maybe not with specific personal information, but all your statistics because they are needing to be able to have this data to forecast what potentially the health aspects of people might be like in the next 10 years or 20 years because it's going to affect their premiums or it's going to affect what they would like to manufacture from a drug perspective, from a health perspective and the likes. So unfortunately, this has already been happening. The question to ask is, as an individual, are you going to get paid when the company sells your personal data? Right? And that's what we hope to foresee that we are able to get in the nearer future. Right? For companies selling your personal data, they're already doing it. Unfortunately, we won't be able to go back. We can only better protect ourselves moving forward. Right, okay, we have another question from Yi Qian Xiang. Um, what is the Chinese government doing in the area of smart contracts? So uh, he also mentioned they have just launched their digital currency in pilots. Yeah, so the Chinese government, I believe, uh, has always been looking into the space for many years. And of course, I think has been highly accelerated 
when Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook uh, announced about Libra, suddenly uh, everything in China actually accelerated. I think one of the things that uh, in China they've done really well is once uh, direction from the top has been set, uh, everyone in the entire country basically drives towards it. I believe their blockchain service network, which is their national network, has just been launched, I believe, maybe about one week ago, and they already have been trials and, uh, and pilots for that. Technically, it's not really a decentralized uh, network. It's actually a little bit more centralized than most people uh, might think about it. And a smart contract layer is on top of that as well. So what the Chinese government doing is actually they're creating a base layer. The easiest that you can imagine is, uh, easiest analogy you can imagine it as is they are launched their own like Amazon cloud, but it's on blockchain. And developers are able to go onto their so-called, the equivalent which is called BSN, right? Their so-called Amazon cloud for blockchain. And to very less cheaply or more cheaply or for lower value, be able to very quickly launch their blockchain projects. And there's a smart contract layer on top of that. So they're trying essentially to lower the cost, lower the friction for organizations to adopt it. So they're able to drive for more mass adoption and to be able to make it simpler for the entire country to digitally transform towards the next so-called technology era. Great. Um, during your presentation as well, you mentioned that the government is working on digital personas. Um, would you care to uh, share a bit more about that? So I can share a little bit. I can't share which government agency. I can no share. Uh, so the idea about digital personas is very this. Uh, is very much this. So today, what we mean by digital personas is that today, if I were to create an online footprint, basically that's my digital persona. Meaning, if today I have a Facebook profile, that's a digital persona. If today I have an Instagram profile, a LinkedIn profile. If today I'm an e-commerce merchant or seller, or today I'm an e-commerce buyer, all of this are different digital personas filled into one. It's very much like I'm author, but I don't put down my real name. I might put down my so-called author's name and the likes. So moving forward, digital persona, personas is going to be an integral part because we don't only have so-called our own personal digital personas, we have our professional persona as well, where we submit our resume. We might be a freelancer, we might be a consultant, we might be a full-time staff, we might be a business owner of the likes. So in the digital space, everything boils back down to identity. And digital personas revolves around identity. The question then in the future will be, digital personas utilizing for good, digital personas utilizing for bad, where people create certain digital personas, uh, do money laundering, do fraudulent activities, and so on and so forth. So the nation's security, our own personal security, actually revolves around this. So the security feel is very much different as well from a from a productivity feel or even from interactive from an interaction feel so digital personas is an extension of identity just that from an online perspective it might just be so complicated that because it's so much more autonomous and that's where eventually you'll link up like different devices that you utilize and even without knowing your name or without even you signing on something they're able to pinpoint that you are that specific same person uh, that has created that. So from a security angle, from a productivity angle, from a business angle, all of this will be highly relevant moving forward. Great. Okay. We have a question from Nicholas before we wrap up. Um, can you talk a little bit more about your personal journey as a founder? 
what motivated you to start your company and what are the main challenges you had to overcome to get to where you are today? So that's going to be about another one hour. <laughs> but I'll try to summarize it. So I, I think I was very lucky. I started my entrepreneurial journey uh, very, very young age. So I had my goal set when I was 14. I was very clear that I wanted to, to, to be an entrepreneur and run a business. And I set up my first business when I was 18. So one of the reasons when I asked myself uh, at the age of 14 was really about what I really want to do with my life. And after asking myself the question, what I identified was that firstly, if I were to go through my normal route, which was to get a degree, pass university, graduate by 25 or 26, I wouldn't be able to achieve the goals that I've set for myself. And I believe that's born into this world for a reason, that I would make a difference. And how better to make a difference than to be able to decide or to be able to be responsible for the life that I have to decide the things that I wish to do. So that was really a driving force to want to make an impact and a difference rather than to just run through the normal routine of so-called the success or what a blueprint of what people have been through. And in doing so, I went through, I started my first business when I was 18, and I was very lucky to meet a lot of successful mentors that have shared with me their own personal goals, as well as what they have done right, as well as done wrong. So I taught myself three things when I was 14. The first four years, what I was doing was very much in these three key areas. So number one, I need to do something different from what other people are doing. Number two, I need to learn how to learn because there's so many things I didn't know how to do. But most importantly, number three, I need to find someone who's already been there and done that and get him to teach me all his secret sources, right? Because that would allow me to leverage and really cut short my learning curve. So one of the key driving forces all along in my entrepreneurial journey was very much how to solve a real world problem. And the question I asked myself, if I can solve a big enough problem and there's value to that, I don't even need to worry about the monetary side because if there's value to that, eventually you'll come. The question asked is, can I find really that real world big problem that I can eventually solve? And in a lot of my startups, even for Vision and the previous one that I had was called Into the Future, what we really looked into was very much what would the future bring forth for us? What would be the problems that the future bring forth? Many times we're looking at solving problems today, but what we realize acceleratingly is that problems are coming faster and faster. So the things I usually look at is in the next three years, what will be the biggest problems that companies face and look at how I can solve that problem. The biggest challenge I face is always talent and people to be able to find the right people that, and when I talk about talent and people, it's not only in terms of their capabilities or competencies. Value is always the most important thing because if they don't have the same value, they might be the most smartest and they might be the most competent person in the world, but they are looking at how they can create a nuclear bomb versus how to use that science to do good instead. So having that, and in fact, they are smart, they have so much more problems they create for you. So when talk about having talents and finding that group of people, it's really about finding not only competent and highly so-called great people in what they do, but really the values that they hold. And you know that smart people all have their own quirks, right? And talented people, uh, talented people have all their own quirks. How do you get this whole group of talented people to work together? So like one of the idols I have, which is uh, Liu Tuanzi, who's the guy who's the founder of a legend, and more, more people be familiar with Lenovo. In his book, 
one of the first opening he says is that he's not so much the pearl on the pearl necklace, he's very much like a string that's able to, pearl, to piece together all the pearls together into a pearl necklace. I guess that's something that I resonate with, how to be that string that eventually you are able to find multiple pearls that we can eventually create that pearl necklace. Great, fantastic session today. Um, here we have Lim Puiche again, founder of uh, Vision Tech and um, this year's National Youth Entrepreneur recipient. Thank you so much, um, Puiche, for your great sharing. Um, and thank you, participants, for joining us uh, today. We'll be sharing the slides and um, video available uh, after the session. There's a survey that uh, you can help us to um, uh, fill up um, once you exit this webinar. So next breakfast session will be on the 11th of June, which we will be talking about building a sustainable future with cell-based meat. We have the CEO and co-founder of uh, Shilk Meats, uh, Dr. Sandhya Sriram, um, to share with you more um, during breakfast session. So see you again if um, you want to reach out to Huichie, he's uh, on LinkedIn, or you can reach, um, reach out to me. Um, for any questions that you have. So thank you again, everyone. I look forward to see you in the next uh, session, the session uh, of webinar. Thank you. Thanks, Vijay. Thank you, everyone. Have a good thank day. You. Stay safe. Bye-bye.